The first reading today comes from the book of Exodus, chapter 24, verses 12 through 18. Listen now to the word of the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there, and I will give you tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, for I have written for their instruction. So Moses set out with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. To the elders he had said, wait here for us until we come to you again. For Aaron and her are with you. Whoever has a dispute may go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. On the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. The gospel lesson this morning comes from the gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, verses 21 through 23, and chapter 17, verses 1 through 8. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this must never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. For you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And Jesus was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three dwellings here, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, Suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud a voice said, This is my Son, the Beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome with fear. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up and do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. 
Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Mountaintop encounters with God are moments of breathtaking majesty and deep insight. On Mount Sinai, Moses and Joshua wait for six days for God's glory to emerge from the cloud, and at last it does as a devouring fire, and God speaks to Moses from the cloud. Moses and Joshua, so far as Exodus tells us, are left speechless and say nothing until they've descended from the mountain with the words of God chiseled into stone tablets. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John with him. Six days later, Matthew tells us, a detail that connects the Transfiguration not only with the story that precedes it in the Gospels, but also with the story we heard from today's Exodus reading. Six days, apparently, is how long you must wait for divine revelation, for the glory of God to suddenly appear on the seventh day. Upon reaching the summit, the disciples don't have to wait long. Jesus was transfigured before them, it says, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became dazzling white. And then Moses and Elijah appear as well, as if to tie it all together. The transfiguration is a moment of profound clarity. Jesus is seen inside out, if you will. His true divine identity, which always lies on the inside, briefly resides on the outside too. Nowhere else in the Gospels does Jesus shine and glow like this, not even after the resurrection. God's presence and glory burst onto this mountaintop scene in the most exquisite way and leaves everyone there to witness it speechless. Well, almost everyone. Peter has something to say. Bless his heart. Peter, it seems, always has something to say. After all, it's only been six days since he last put his foot in his mouth. Jesus was telling his disciples he must soon go to the cross and suffer and be crucified. And Peter has the audacity, the unmitigated gall, to pull Jesus aside and rebuke him, saying to Jesus, this must never happen to you. The price you pay for trying to take the cross away from Christ? Get behind me, Satan, Jesus says. You are a stumbling block to me. Famous as Peter is for being the chief disciple and the rock of the church and all that, he's also the only disciple ever to get called Satan by Jesus, a dubious distinction to go along with his acclaim, all because he couldn't just stop and listen to what Jesus was really saying. And at the transfiguration, something similar happens. Now, Peter, to his credit, is at least a bit more cautious with his speech than he was in the last episode. Dale Bruner unpacks Peter's words on the mountaintop from this more careful vantage point. Lord, Peter begins, which is the right way to begin, it is so good that we are here a harmless observation, trying to be positive. If it is your will, Peter really does 
want to do the right thing this time. He wants to do Jesus' will, not his own will. I will make three dwellings here. As if to say, I don't know what these other guys are going to do, but here's what I'll do for you, Jesus. One for you, Peter begins, putting Jesus first, that's good, and only then going back to add one for Moses and one for Elijah. Perhaps Peter's sort of walking on eggshells here, still regaining his footing from getting called Satan. But the thing is, if you're walking on eggshells, maybe you should stop walking altogether. And if you're Peter, and you're often talking too much, often talking when you should be listening, talking when you should be listening to God, then maybe you should just stop talking altogether. I'm not being facetious here. The text subtly makes this observation. Let's read it carefully. It says, while Peter was still talking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud a voice said, this is my son, the beloved, with him I am well pleased. Listen to him. The little word still in the Greek appears at the front of this sentence for emphasis, as if to say, still while Peter was speaking, as if to raise the question, why is Peter talking while God is talking? Fitting then that God should go on to say from the cloud, listen to Jesus. He's my priceless son. I'm very pleased with him. I wonder why Peter so often seems in a hurry to advise Jesus. Part of Peter's problem seems to be that he's intent on being super positive and upbeat. In chapter 16, he wants to save Jesus from the cross, assuming there must be a less excruciating way to save the world. And now, on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter wants to do something to help. He wants to do something constructive. So he proposes constructing three dwellings. So everyone will have their own room. As if Jesus, Moses, and Elijah are planning on moving in on the mountaintop. It's a strange idea, actually. And in Mark's account of the Transfiguration, he adds a great little line. Peter didn't know what he was talking about. Peter's problem isn't that he wants to do something bad. His problem is that he wants to do something good, but he thinks he knows what good thing he ought to do before he's really listened to Jesus. But Peter's own ideas about what is good to do for Jesus are ill-informed by Jesus himself. As fellow disciples, Peter's well-intentioned blunders offer us a caution. We should listen before we speak, yes, but more specifically, we should carefully scrutinize our own ideas against Jesus' words. Is what we think is best what Jesus says is best? Many of us, I'm sure, think we know what we should do before we've really listened to God. 
or because we already know what we want to do, we simply look to God to offer a confirmation of what we've previously decided is best. We just look for God's stamp of approval. It seems true to me that generally most of us are more eager to defend our opinions than to put them to the test. Don't we all have a confirmation bias that easily credits new data to our own perspective and easily dismisses data to the contrary? Sometimes when we have a good idea, we want to put it into motion before we've really listened. So often the ideas that we generate on our own reflect Peter's deferral to positivity and his negation of suffering. Certainly Americans love the idea of being optimistic and upbeat, right? It's a virtue in our culture, isn't it? To have a sunny disposition, to always look on the bright side of life. We don't love talking about suffering and death at any rate, or even things that we would call negative. In premarital counseling, I always ask couples how they relate to one another's highs and lows. I'll ask each of them, how do you respond if your partner's had a bad day? And most of the time, the first answer they come up with is, I try to cheer them up, right? That's the assumed virtue in our culture. But how often do couples report wishing that their partner would just listen to them more rather than always trying to solve their problem? Sometimes we try to cheer someone up before we've really heard them. Sometimes we try to do something good before we've really listened. When Jesus tells Peter, when Peter tells Jesus that he must never suffer and die, Peter is trying to do something he thinks is good. He's trying to steer Jesus away from suffering, from even the thought of suffering. He's trying to cheer him up in some kind of superficial way. Peter doesn't understand, yet, that Jesus did not come to look away from suffering, but to take up his cross for the sins of the world, to stand in solidarity with those who suffer. Peter doesn't understand that Jesus did not come to save us from a bad attitude, but to actually give us grounds for genuine, authentic, and abiding hope that the world will be changed because of his saving work, which he accomplishes through his suffering. Jesus doesn't want Peter to do something for him. Not yet. For now, Jesus wants Peter to listen to him. Jesus wants Peter to behold him. And surely, Jesus has the same desire for his church today. For his church that is scrambling to reinvent itself after years of cultural decline, accelerated by the pandemic. We've got all kinds of ideas about how to do something good for Jesus. But we don't always stop to hear Jesus first. We don't always simply slow down to behold God's glory and to listen to Jesus' words. To be sure, the church has work to do, but not before we've first listened to Jesus. 
when God speaks from the cloud, we observe that God wants those who follow Jesus to maintain a singular focus on Christ. In Matthew, God only speaks twice, at Jesus' baptism and at his transfiguration. And both times, God speaks about Jesus. And he says the same thing. This is my beloved son. I am pleased with him. And here at the transfiguration, God adds the comment that we all need to hear with Peter. Listen. Listen to him. We might expect God to say, listen to me. But listening to Jesus is listening to God. For God's beloved son is the word of God. There is no God behind the back of Jesus. If we want to know what God is like, we must look at and listen to Christ. Unless the church remains laser-focused on the proclamation of this seminal and saving truth, we will easily begin to equate our own good ideas with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can easily begin to equate our sunny dispositions with the good news and wind up with a self-serving gospel that makes happiness the supreme good, a hollow gospel of positive thinking that tries to make every day a Friday, to quote the title of the most popular Christian book. And in the end, we become unable to really encounter and lament or even talk about the suffering and injustice in the world which is where the risen Christ can still be found. We become unable to follow Jesus down the mountain and to the cross. But in the end, following Jesus down the mountain and to the cross is the task at hand. Now, though the voice of God strikes some sense into Peter and some fear into all the disciples, the text does end on an uplifting note. Jesus comes to the now terrified disciples, touches them and says, get up and do not be afraid. And when they looked up, Matthew tells us, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. A wonderful, needlessly redundant, deeply profound phrase no one except Jesus himself alone. Friends, though we sometimes speak too soon, though we sometimes put too much stock in our own good ideas rather than listening well, Jesus still comes to us and lifts up the pieces. And when we really listen to Jesus, we hear him saying again and again, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. And when we hear his voice, when he lifts us up, everything else fades away, and we see no one except Jesus himself alone. Throughout our Lenten journey ahead, may we see Jesus clearly, that we might follow him down the mountain and to Jerusalem, and all the while hear him say to us, do not be afraid. Alleluia and thanks be to God. Amen.